0: Hello and welcome to the podcast today guys we have an absolutely killer talk with former British Olympian and now DNA fit head of sports science Craig Pickering guys I mean obviously you know we're talking DNA we're talking genetic profiling here today with Craig we're going to start out talking about his professional background both as an athlete and his education and we're going to start diving right into what DNA fit is and who they are what the company does the services they provide, and, and all of the things that they're trying to do. And then we get into actually talking about genetic profiling, how it can lead to greater individualization with training, and looking at how you can adapt your training better specifically to the athlete. They provide some really, really cool information, and Craig gets into a lot of different examples, both looking at himself as an athlete and then how it can be modified based on, you know, different team sports. We talk about what genetic profiling would have done with his career, and that's really cool to be able to take someone who was at the highest level of sport and to sit there and say, listen, this is what this would have done for me. I, to me, I, I think that's super cool, and I, I really can't thank Craig enough for being as open and candid in looking back on his development and his athletic career and and kind of breaking it down and sharing how he could have done things better based on what his readings or his his, uh, genetic profile told him. You know, and and honestly, guys, I I would have been reminisced if I didn't talk with a guy who who ran a 10-14 about where he sees speed training, what it does, how it fits in with team sport athletes and things of that nature. Craig shares some really awesome insight on not just sprint training, but what could be different with team sport athletes. And then, you know, oddly enough, he brings up a thought of how strong is strong enough, something that seems to be a uh, a, a reoccurring theme. Guys, this talk with Craig was super awesome. The whole you know thing with genetic profiling is, is the wave of the future, and it's going to change sport. I hope you guys enjoy this talk as much as I did. It was absolutely fantastic. Let's get right to it. Craig, thank you very much for being on with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so for the the listeners and everybody watching out there, let's just give them a quick background and then we can get rolling from there.
1: Yeah, so um, my name's Craig Pickering. I used to be a professional athlete, so I went to four World Championships and one Olympic Games as a sprinter, which was a 100-meter runner. And my personal best there was 10.14 seconds. And then when I was training for the London Olympics, I got quite a serious injury. So I had to have a back operation, which meant I missed the whole year of 2012. So I missed the Olympics. And as a result of that, I kind of was thinking about what I could do in my life. And I thought about trying a new challenge. So I moved across to Bobsleigh, which is going down a hill really quick in a sled. Um, I did that for just over a year. And I qualified for the Olympic Games. In that as well. So, maybe only the eighth British athlete to be picked for a summer and winter Olympics, which sounds like a happy ending, but it isn't because when I got to the Olympics, I suffered a career ending injury and so then had to retire. Um, And that was the end of my my sporting career, really. Wow.
0: So, Olympics in two different sports.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: And now you are involved with.
1: Yeah, so now I work for a company called DNA Fit. So, once I retired, I was kind of just bouncing around, doing doing various different things. And one of my best friends from athletics, a 400-meter runner called Andrew Steele, who went to the Olympics together in 2008, um, I met up with him for some food. And he was just telling me about this company he just started working for called DNA Fit. And he said, I think we've got something here which might be quite useful. If I send you a kit, will you do a test for me and tell me what you think? And he sent me the kit. I got my results back about two weeks later. And it just kind of... It, Blew my mind really about how much information came out of it and how useful that might have been to me at an earlier point in my career or any point in my career, really. So, from there, Andrew fortunately offered me a job, um, and it turns out I'm quite good at my job. So, I get offered more and more work from them. And then, so now I work with them full time, and so now I'm head of sports science at DNA Fit. So, my role is kind of identifying new genes that we do through a genetic testing company, finding new genes that we can add to our panel, um, answering questions from um, customers, going to professional sports teams, explaining how we use it there, and then research and also education. So a lot of things go on in my day-to-day life.
0: Okay, so let's, let's take about two steps back really quick. So you're working with DNA Fit. You're looking to find new genes and alleles and things of that nature that coincide with how people perform. But people are going to sit here and say, well, wait a minute, you're a two time Olympic athlete. And most people in America will think it's a European guy who was a high level athlete. So how does he get into this? But you're a little different than that. Like your education background fills some holes here in a little bit.
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. So um, I've got a degree in sport exercise science from Bath University. So I spent four years down there and um, doing that course and once I graduated I kind of had a choice I could carry on doing full-time sport which takes up a lot of your time or I could um try to do some education stuff based around around that but I didn't really have the time alongside my professional training to, to do a master's or a PhD so instead I sort of came to a compromise i trained full time but I got a lot of practical experience working with all the sports science stuff, so biomechanists, nutritionists, psychologists, etc. So I built up a lot of um, skills and people I could talk with the, the latest sports science stuff about. So although I wasn't in any real education program, I was still sort of furthering my knowledge in that field in the hope that someday, once I had to finish sport, which I thought would be in my late thirties, but it turned out to be ten years earlier that I would be able to to do something in this field. So I've got I've got I got lucky that I found somebody who knew I'd done that. So though I didn't have a paper qualifications, he knew that my background was in sports science and that I'd been working with these sports science people. So took a chance on me and hopefully it's paying off.
0: No, yeah, and it's absolutely brilliant. So let's talk about now what you guys are doing here with DNA Fit. Now obviously athlete profiling is something that's absolutely fundamental when it comes to working with and building programs with athletes from whatever level so how do you guys fit into that and and where do you see this going
1: so really we just see ourselves as a source of more information so how do coaches decide what training works best for somebody quite often it's through a trial and error process so you go to the literature and you say okay this rep scheme and this type of training works for somebody, let's see how they respond to that. And that can take a long time to get a positive or negative result from that. What we think is that we can reduce that trial and error. So we give some more information about how the athlete's made up, um, which has an impact on how they respond to certain type of training. Like, Are they more likely to grow type 2X muscle fibres in response to a training program, or do they not have the genetic capability to do that quite as well? All information which can be quite important so we look at factors like that in order to give just a bit more information to coaches and athletes to base their decisions on and on the fitness side we look at something called power and endurance split so that tells people what type of training works best for them do they respond better to intensity based training or do they respond better to volume based training and how much of each should they do and um, we have a section on aerobic trainability as well so how much should somebody improve or what type of improvement would we expect to see in somebody doing um, aerobic-based training. We've got a recovery section as well, so how quickly do people recover in between training sessions, so it can be really useful for athletes. Athletes can be incredibly highly motivated to train, but if you can say to them, look, genetically we know you are somebody who struggles to recover, that could be a stimulus to them to listen to the coach a bit more and actually do a bit less training, which can um, often be the downfall of other people and then also we have an injury risk part as well so um, how likely is somebody to suffer from certain types of injuries and if we know that risk is high what can we do about it can we manipulate their training um, to reduce that risk by using eccentric loading or making sure the athlete understands that risk so again the athlete might be more motivated to do some rehabilitation training or some stretching or things like that so Really, well, we think a really powerful tool um, in terms of information for the coach, but also information for the athlete as well.
0: Actually, it sounds absolutely phenomenal to me as a guy who's worked with, you know, OmegaWave for as long as I have. And we look at just going from the end back to the beginning. So you talk about injury risk. So we're talking soft tissue. So is it someone who you need to start looking at? even more so the biomechanics of how they move and these factors that could lead to things that could elicit these soft tissue issue, uh, issues. Then we get into, you talked about recoverability. Well, we have guys who, I mean, dude, we I mean, literally we could have them run 10 miles and then 100 hill sprints and squat a max and they'd still come back straight greens because no matter what, they're just people that can bounce back from things. Where there's other people where we could tell them take six naps and do nothing but eat for a whole day, and they still come back straight yellows. So understanding where people are in the recovery model could allow you now to set these these other factors. Are you gonna monitor practice more for player X versus player Y, are you going to monitor readiness more for player X versus player Y? And it's it's something that is really uh, it's it's almost like something that's so simple in the in the grand scheme of things that people would step past it. Uh, so, what are your thoughts with how this could elicit more individualization? when it comes to the grand scheme of training in high performance when it comes to all athletes?
1: Yeah, so let me give you an example to answer that question. So I'll give you my example. So I was an athlete and I was a sprinter. And most sprinters, they train by doing really short, sharp sprints at really high intensity. So 30 to 60-meter sprints at 100% effort. And in the gym, they go and lift heavy weights for one or two reps, maybe three reps. So they're lifting close to one RM um, for a lot of the time. I didn't train like that. I trained very differently. I responded much better to volume. So when I was a kid uh, growing up and in, in my younger years, I would my best distance in training was sort of 150, 200 meters. I could run at 90% all day long. But as soon as I went a bit higher intensity, I struggled a bit. Same in the gym. I could lift six. Six rep maxes were really good. Eight rep maxes are really good. One rep max, not quite as good. And I got to a point where I thought, I'm not training like other sprinters train. I should change my training to fit in with theirs. And I did that. I changed coach and I spent a few years training like most sprinters do. And I'm much, much slower. And so I had to go back to the way I used to train, which, um, again, more volume, less intensity. I actually got back to some pretty pretty good shape. Um, I had to spend two years of not running well to, to learn that. Whereas had I had that information at a younger age, that, I don't respond to that, that could be useful. And then when I retired, I had a DNA fit test. It showed that I responded much better to volume. I'm 65% endurance on our scale, which doesn't mean I should be an endurance athlete. It means I respond better to volume-based training. So that information itself could have saved me two years of underperformance and enabled me to make a better decision. Same on the recovery side. So I used to be really, really motivated. I uh, thought the harder I train, the faster I'll run. And it turns out the harder you train, you just get a bit more tired. And so eventually over time, I was really, really under recovered. And I imagine for large parts of my career I was in overtraining or non-functional overreaching or just basically a period of fatigue where no positive adaptations were happening. And again, when I had a DNA fit test, showed I had a slow recovery speed. If I'd had that information, just that extra bit of metrics, something which shows that I don't recover very well, I need to do something about it, that might have been enough me to have taken any slightly easy day in the middle of the week or something I can go to my coach and say look I don't think I should do four hard training sessions a week this is a bit more information to suggest that I perhaps should do three hard training sessions a week so that's how it can be really really powerful and then we see in sports clubs as well sports clubs can have if we're in a soccer club they could quite comfortably have 50 players in the first team and the second team how do the physiotherapists know which players need slightly more attention you have 10 players that turn up on a Monday morning after a game and they're complaining about a sore knee, which players need perhaps a bit more serious attention? Which players do you know can get away a bit more? And again, the injury risk thing can complain to that a little bit more. Similarly, if you've got a strength if you're a, strength a conditioning coach and you've got fifteen athletes in the gym at one time and you're doing plyometrics who needs to be watched a bit more to make sure that they're landing properly? Who's got a bit more leeway within that? So that's the injury risk part of it, which can can be really important. So A lot of this is a case of we don't necessarily know how the coach can use it. We can recommend that, but they have to then go away and think about how it fits into their scheme. We're just an extra metric of information that they can use.
0: Yeah, no, and that's actually some pretty super examples when you look at, A, recoverability, and then B, the injury risk, and and talking about those things. I mean, obviously, you could always walk across the street and get hit by a car. No one's ever exactly. gonna no one's ever gonna get in the way with that. You know, if if you're a footballer and somebody whacks you from behind and you break your fibula, sometimes shit happens. But yeah. understanding that Craig is this way and Jay is that way. So when Craig comes in the day after a match and his knees are sore, we might need to pay a little more attention to him. And and Jay is sore, but He just might need to go. Uh, I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating to me. So then looking at this and looking at where you were as a high-level athlete, where would this have changed what you did? Where would this sort of monitoring or evaluation have changed who Craig is and where he is right now?
1: So I think if I had let's say I had the test done at eighteen, which is the youngest we would prefer to test people. So I was eighteen years old, I had the test done. I think what it would have done is it would have encouraged me that the training I was doing at that point, the higher volume training was actually was actually well suited for me. And there was no need to try a different method. So I would have not spent time worrying about that kind of thing. And then secondly, the recovery side of it would would have been would have been massive. I'd have I would definitely would have trained less um, in terms of overall training days. I'd have done some hard sessions still, but I had perhaps an easier day midweek in order to recover. Because I kind of anecdotally found that anyway. In my sprint group, we trained, we sprinted on um, Monday, Wednesday, uh, and Saturday. And on Saturday, I might as well have not turned up for that training session. I was sometimes I just so wasted by that point. Whereas other athletes in my group were really, really good on that Saturday. So I would guess they perhaps had a fast recovery. If I'd have known that, I might have had an easy session midweek, so I could focus more on a Saturday. So that's that's really really important. I think one thing that I did do correctly in my career is that I um, found out after I retired that I've got the highest injury risk we've seen out of any athlete we've tested tested uh, tested twelve thousand people. And now I've got the highest injury risk um, genetically out of, of everybody. Really and I, like, I retired from sport because of a back injury. So I've got three herniated discs my back these genes are linked to to disc issues had my first disc problem when I was 12 years old so already that's a very young age to have a problem so I was always predisposed to this type of injury but I was motivated to do something about that even at that age as soon as I'd seen physios I was doing core-based exercises making sure I could handle talk, that kind of thing um Every night, I'd do some sort of stretching, hockey ball, um, foam roller into musculature in my back, like QL, um, psoas, that kind of thing. So I was motivated to stay on top of that because I knew that I was more likely to suffer from these types of injuries. And then that information confirmed that for me. Whereas if I was not quite as motivated, like a lot of athletes are, a lot of athletes don't like to do rehabilitation training. They find it boring and mind them. And that can just be more information for them to go, actually, you know, I do need to do these Achilles these exercises today because my Achilles' risk of injury is quite high. And I quite like competing. Uh, therefore, and to do that, I just need to do 10 minutes of these exercises. It's going be a really, really important metric. Like Behavioral change is definitely one part of this test. Um, if you can give... Because everybody knows they should do certain behavior, They just don't think it applies to them. So if you can make it apply to them, that can be really important.
0: Now, just being doubles advocate here, do you think that maybe telling a kid you got a high risk of getting hurt might change their thought out, you know, their thought process to be like, oh shit. You know what I mean? Like I need to be careful with everything I do. Um, How would you advise coaches in those type of situations where it would be more to be proactive and how to communicate that type of information?
1: Yeah, so that's part of the training that we actually try and run with people. So we sell our products through personal trainers um, and also professional sports people. It's all about placing the results in context. So part of that is we try as much as we can. So we we don't sell direct to consumer um, to people that are under the age of 18 because they are perhaps not mature enough to place the results in the correct context. And then our preferred model is that we will have educated the sports coach prior to them testing their squad for example and so they can also place it in context to their athletes and then constantly reinforce this so it's a case of we know you've got a high injury risk and actually knowing this is really good news because now we can do something about it we're not blindly walking into the dark we've got this information and we know that if we do these exercises for example the eccentric load the Achilles tendon we know that reduces your injury risk. So we've had more information and now we can do something about that. So I think that's really important, but it does have to be placed in the correct context. And quite often people miss that context and that nuance, which is that it doesn't mean you're going to get injured. It means that your risk is higher unless we do something about that, and that doing something about that. That's the crucial thing.
0: No. And I think that that's absolutely brilliant so that they can actually understand even to a greater toll why the training modifications are what they are and then even what other modalities you know could be included in that whether it be you know practice load monitoring for specific players now as opposed to an entire team because if you've got kids that their injury risk is you know based on genetics are, are very low you probably don't need to strap them up or put a put a GPS monitor on them other than maybe for the fact that you want to monitor effort um, and then, if you've got people that recover fine, they probably don't really need a readiness monitor. They probably can just follow their training program as is and just go so it would almost be a cheap, easy sell for anyone in a this is just the cheesy term that everybody in America uses now, like the sports science program for them to be able to say. Well, Craig needs this. Jay needs that. Andrew needs something else. Um, and and I think that that's really what is super cool about it, because you know we can look at blood and 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 all of that, and that'll tell us one thing. But really, your genetic profile is legitimately who you are. So there's no way to walk away from what that is. Um. So looking at that, do you guys talk with coaches and staffs and, and athletes about things that may help uh, guide, direct, or push them in different directions that may be influenced based on what their actual genetic profile is?
1: Yeah, we certainly can do. So we go to clubs and say, look, we know that this player has this version of this gene or this combination of certain genes. and so. We think they respond to this type of training better and this is the evidence for that but we also understand that each coach each person in the medical staff they have their own philosophy about how things work so it's often a case of this is the information that we have we think it means this but you might interpret it this way and so you can do do this about about that kind of thing so for example we, we think eccentric loading is quite good other people think isometric loading for tendons is, is good they both have the same effects. it's just what does that individual practitioner think the strength of evidence for each thing is so yeah we do definitely focus on education as part of it because um people would assume that genetics is really complex it's not actually quite as complex as people think but we try and break that barrier down to make make it as usable as possible and then just like present the research and the evidence surrounding all the genes the use of these in combination what the support for certain things is and then people can can either use our conclusions or use our information um, as the basis of their conclusions as well. So really it's got quite a good relationship if they can come back to us as well and say, we found that people with this gene respond this way. We might not be able to say that to them usually because we're an evidence-based company and if there's no research on that, we can't necessarily say that. But if they say, oh, look, we noticed that we're using Omega Wave for these players and it matches up really nicely, players that have got a low recovery speed and you're, test also they recover slower on the immediate wave. there's no research behind that so we can't tell them that but they can tell us that and it's a really good two-way relationship so we definitely do want to work with as many coaches as possible to just get more information essentially
0: no yeah and i think that that's i mean obviously the the conglomeration is where things are going to start to tie themselves together and and, and things of that nature and i think that that's That's really super cool, like, to me, to be able to sit there and be like, hey, you know, listen, man, we're going to take a little cotton swab, we're going to run it through your cheek, and we're going to know how to handle you for the next four years to make sure that you're the best and, you know, knock wood, the healthiest player that we can have here in this institution. And it's almost to the point now where you guys have it so that it's its really not financially that big of a burden, that people shouldn't be doing this with everyone. It's almost part of just their general health screen.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. So, I mean, at the moment, our most expensive test is 249 um, British pounds. I'm not exactly sure that is in U.S. dollars, but it'd be around 450 U.S. dollars. I think maybe a bit, a bit cheaper than that. But, yeah, I mean, we have such a – wide range of customers we have a sports person that wants to understand their exercise program and what they should be doing and um, we also have a diet panel as well which enables people to sit and track their health so again useful for sports people how much of certain nutrients they need but also just useful to the general person in the street a 70 year old woman who just wants to make sure that her last 20 30 years are going to be you know, sort of as disease free as possible does she focus on, on more foods as so that achieves one of our customers. I mean, we do have such a wide, broad variety of people that want this test. It's really, really, um, really, really good to see the take. And actually, our biggest barrier is people don't know that you can do this. As soon as people understand that you can do genetic testing and it can give us information, invariably, they're incredibly interested and they want to sign up. So yeah, like I said, our biggest
0: barrier is just getting the word out. This is an absolute thing, and it it does it does work. So where do you see all of this going in the future then now i mean right now performance monitoring is very keen and readiness monitoring is 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 really sexy where do you see genetic profiling being in 2020 and
1: 2025. i think as more and more research is done, we'll just get more and more information. So at the moment, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, which genes have a really large effect. Um, we can measure that now with the current technology, and we can provide recommendations on that. As technology and research evolves, we'll be able to tell you about genes that have a very small effect. And then we'll be able to understand how genes work in combination. So the picture will get clearer. It's a very good picture now, um, but it's kind of a bit blocky. Um, The information is not as specific as we might like it to be in 20 years time it might be a case of we know this person needs 30 grams of protein after training based on their genetics and their environment whereas we know this person only needs 20 grams and they need a bit more carbohydrate whereas this person needs two or three grams of triglycerides added to their shake stuff like that so it will become much much more precise I think one aspect which always gets discussed is the talent identification part of it so at the moment our test has absolutely no validity as a talent id tool um the, there's only 15 genes to do with um power and endurance you can't make any decisions based on that really i mean one gene called actn3 we know that 99 percent of olympic sprinters have a certain version of this gene but that also means that one percent of olympic sprinters have the other version of that gene so we can't say for sure someone's chance of being an elite athlete and we never will be able to there'll always be athletes that break the rule eventually we might get to a point where we say the chances of this person being an elite athlete is higher than normal but you'll never be able to say for certain whether they're an athlete uh, or whether somebody can be an elite athlete or not and that's especially true In team sports uh, where non-physical aspects become really important as well like how well can somebody read the game can they pick a pass um can they do do so under pressure do they fit into a team all things which perhaps aren't genetic but have much more to do with upbringing and stuff like that so probably we'll never be able to tell people if they will or won't be an elite athlete you might be able to give them some guidance and the chances of that but that i don't think there's any use in that at the moment, um, or or indeed ever. It's more about how can we make big changes in people's training and their lifestyle as well. And so, quite soon we will be able to look probably at genes to do with stress and stress response. So, how well does per player X handle pressure? Um, if we know that they don't handle pressure very well, what training do we need to do for that? Do we need to get them to see the sports psychologist to have stress inoculation training in place? Um, so, just think things like that, which are just around the corner. Um, it's a very exciting time to be involved because it's quite early on. And I eventually, I reckon, in about 20 years, in fact, even less than that, in about five years, I reckon, pretty much every sports person will have had a genetic test done just to
0: get that information. Wow. So you're you're saying by 2021, everybody's just going to walk in and, and people are going to have a good idea of what Craig and Jay really are.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, like, By about then, as well, it could well be that the technology is is much quicker. So that you join a gym, for example, and they take a swab, and pay your membership fees, and then perhaps a few hours later, you get your results. And so straight away, you get an individualised training program based on that. As we just get more and more research and technology gets better and better, the picture just becomes clearer and it becomes a much quicker process as well.
0: That'd be sweet. That'd be really sweet. Um. And it would be really interesting to see how that would change the landscape of, especially in high level college athletics, how that would change the landscape of recruiting. You know, because you could just bring a kid on a trip and be like, hey, and before they get into the head coach's office, he could look at a profile and say, "Mm, I'm going to offer that kid a scholarship, but I'm probably not going to offer him one. Like, That's really cool to me.
1: Yeah, it just completely depends, like I said, on on how you use it. So whether it can be used as a talent ID tool or not, I personally don't think it could. It'll just be a case of how well does this person respond to training. So it might be a case of every year you get 30 new players and then you have to spend some time deciding, does this player respond better to this training? Does this player respond better to that training? That's a long process. If you can swab your recruits and then immediately know okay, this player does this training, that player does that training, you've reduced a large part of trial and error so they can just hit the ground running. Um, they they slot into your existing team really nicely. The strength and conditioning coaches all understand how to do that. So that can be really, really useful. Same for like professional sports clubs. They sign a player, they just swab them straight away. They know, okay, he needs this type of training, he needs this, this medical support as opposed to the trial and error. What I wouldn't like to see, and I think if it happens, it's not being used correctly. Is football clubs swabbing, so soccer clubs swabbing their new signing, finding out he has a high injury risk, and then not signing him? That's not that's not what that means. It just means you should spend more time um, on the biomechanics of this. It should throw more resources at that player. So that's you know, that's that's crucial. But then we get into like ethical considerations about things. So, for example, let's say loads of NFL clubs wanted to test their players. Does the player bargaining agreement allow that to happen? Who owns the player's data? Does the club own the data or do the players own the data? Can the players then decide how much data they give to their clubs? Can clubs decide um, to not sign players who have got a high concussion risk, for example? Is that allowed? Just because they've got a high concussion risk doesn't mean they're going to get concussion. So the ethical considerations of that are really, really important, not just in professional sport, but also in the general health sphere. Like do do insurance companies have the right to demand that their clients do health-based genetic testing? And if they find they've got an increased risk of certain disease, should they be allowed to charge them higher premiums? I think they shouldn't. I think the opposite should be true. If you swab someone and find they've got a higher risk of type 2 diabetes, their insurance premium should be lower if they can show they're on a low-carbohydrate diet because they're actively doing something to reduce their health risk there. So that's the ongoing conversation, the ethical part of it. How does it all fit into how people live their lives? How does it fit into legislation in both health and professional sports? So it really is kind of, because it's so new, there's all those ethical questions that surround it.
0: Yeah, no, so instead of looking at it as identification, you're talking about using it as motivation and driving tactics on the individual level so that whether it be the gen pop or an athlete, them utilizing this data to become better by formulating a plan to correct whatever quote issues may be predetermined
1: yeah exactly Yeah, it's all about just more information to guide what we do already so more and more evidence to base whatever our practice is um so yeah it's it really isn't about sort of putting people into this person's a sprinter this person's an runner this person's going to get cancer, this person isn't going to get cancer. It's a case of this person's risk of this type of illness is slightly higher unless they do this. And if they do this, we know that their risk completely disappears. Or this person's chances of responding to heavyweight training is a bit lower. Therefore, perhaps we need to throw a slightly different training at them to get them to the same point. So we don't know what people's start point is. and We don't know what people's end point is. But we can recommend what they should do on the journey to get to those different places. No, that's
0: freaking brilliant. That's awesome. I mean that's that's next level stuff, man. Like that's really cool and I hope people understand like how such a cheesy word, but like futuristic <laughs> that idea is. I mean it's talking in this futuristic is like even past cheesy, but you know what I'm saying with that. Yeah. Where it's like using this data to drive decisions to help improve things as opposed to using this data to drive decisions to help avoid things. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is totally different. Well, Craig, I, I, as fascinating as this is, I would be remiss if I didn't ask one question before we let you go because, I mean, any guy who, who grew up in, in GB who can run a 10 second 100 if I didn't talk speed training with them, I would be reminisced. <laughs> so let, let's talk about that. What for you, and now being able to look literally inside the athlete, what would be the things that you would say could, could have the greatest effect on making an athlete move faster?
1: So I think – if I look at what I did between the ages of 14, so when I was 14, my 100-meter personal best was 11 seconds exactly. And when I was 18, my 100 meters personal best was 10.22 seconds. So I took off almost a second in four years. And that's, that's a really big improvement. That's about eight meters improvement. And what I did was, well, I grew quite a lot and matured, which obviously has a big impact. Um, but actually improving my strength had the biggest impact. At one point, um, when I was 17, I was doing more strength training I was doing sprint training because I understood that you have to be able to handle the forces that go through your body and you also have to produce quite a lot of force so as a start point athletes should be strong enough um, to be a sprinter so for me that was getting a power clean up to just over 100 kilos and a back squat of about 180 kilos and then I found the more weight I lifted above that I didn't necessarily improve quite as much secondly um, technique training is absolutely crucial Looking back on my career, the one mistake I made and that I didn't pay attention to until I was—it was too late. Really, was the correct technique. Have to make sure people are moving correctly. And I'm talking like running quickly is an unnatural action. If you watch kids sprint, they don't sprint with the correct te- technique. Um, so we have to get them to do that at a fairly early age. So it's about um, front side mechanics, so lifting the knee really high, and minimizing backside mechanics. So as soon as the leg goes behind the body. Actively pick it up and move it forward. Those two things are really, really important. So spending a lot of time working on that and ingraining those movement patterns can be, should be really important because once you've got the incorrect movement patterns, it takes a long time mm-hmm. to unlearn them. And believe me, I spent I spent a long time trying to unlearn them. So actually, sort of prevention um is much better than, than cure in that case. So they're the key things. And then like, if you want to get quicker, you just have to sprint but you have to do so with the appropriate volume. Um, again, I found out that the more you sprint, the more tired you get. You have to make sure the amount of sprint training that somebody does is appropriate to where they sit at that given time. So if they've got other demands, like sport training, that obviously should take precedence because that's the sport they play in. But how can you build sprint training into that or around that can be really, really important. And typically, we would generally see really highly trained athletes need 48 hours between the maximum sprint training sessions. In slightly lesser trained athletes, you might only be able to do two hard sprint sessions a week. They're kind of some of the main things um, that came across, actually, on the technical side. Um, it's a guy called Ralph Mann. He's got a book called The Mechanics of Sprint and Hurdles. Like that book mm-hmm. is, should become any sprint coach's Bible when it comes to, to trying to run quicker. What I will say is that I don't always know how well correct sprint mechanics play across into team sports. So correct sprint mechanics require you to have a lot of time off the floor. So um, really long stride length, really long flight time. If you're playing professional football or soccer, and you have to change direction quite a lot. If you're in the air, you can't change direction. So I'm not always sure whether team sport players should learn to have really long flight times and really good straddlements, should they actually learn to spend a bit more time on the floor between short steps, that kind of thing. So that's kind of the caveat I would add to that. That's how I train as a sprinter. How appropriate would that be to an elite sports person? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, basically.
0: So let me ask you just kind of a weird personal question. We've talked about how strong is strong enough, and you brought up the idea of squatting 180 kilos was enough for you. Yep. What was your body weight then?
1: Uh, it's eighty-two kilos, so he's just over two times body weight.
0: So that's that's awesome. And Dr. Mann's going to be stoked when he hears that because what they found at Missouri was that somewhere with American football players, somewhere between two and two and a half times body weight was where the squat kind of leveled out, and if you got much stronger than that. It didn't show up, and you know my assistant and I—we've been talking about that with the basketball team—is it's like, well, how strong do they need to be? Yeah, and the number keeps coming back to be about double body weight. Now, yeah. you're probably not six eleven, so I mean, obviously, <laughs> that's going to make things a little different because, you know, if you're six eleven and you're you know, two fifty, that's way different than if you're five ten and two fifty. Um, but the whole idea that it's, it's a little bit more than two times your body weight. I, it seems like we're finding a magic number there when it comes to the squat.
1: It, yeah, it does. But the problem is if you're an athlete and you think the stronger you get, the quicker you run, you just ignore that because you oh, think oh, I just no. need to get stronger. But oh, what kilos oh, no, no. to a squat, which is already at 180 kilos is a lot of time for Correct. a very small reward. And so if you can educate athletes about that, like, Again, going back, that's one of the things that I did wrong. I thought, I thought, a nice linear relationship. The stronger I am, the quicker I'll go. But like in a year, I might add two and a half kilos to a back squat, and that's a lot, a lot of training for a very small improvement. Whereas if I just maintained what I had and focused those efforts on something else, that could have been really important.
0: No doubt. And what in that two and a half kilos, maybe what took you from a, a ten fifteen to a ten fourteen?
1: Yeah, if that, it might not might have made no difference whatsoever.
0: Right. So that's twelve months for maybe a hundred. It's like... Ooh.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, Craig. That's an absolutely amazing point. And then that's a fantastic spot to leave us. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. This this talk is absolutely fantastic.
1: Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for spending the time with us, bud. Excellent. Thanks a lot. And a huge thank you again to today's guest, DNA Fitz, Craig Pickering. Guys, I mean, absolutely awesome stuff. Just, you know, to hear... How someone who competed at the highest level could could use a tool and has become involved with this company and how genetic profiling is, is the wave of the future and looking at what it can do, whether you're looking at changing just specific actions that you're using in training or looking at volumes or using a readiness monitor, in athlete A versus B because they don't recover as well. I mean... That in itself is worth its weight in gold, and, and to run a simple test that would give you all that information for a couple hundred bucks—I mean, I don't see why we wouldn't want to do it. I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I mean, there was really some awesome nuggets, some really cool information, it's, and Craig's an awesome guy, so I can't thank him enough for being on today. If you guys have any thoughts, questions, comments, please share them below. Craig was—it uh, was really fantastic and he shared some really intimate thoughts about his own career which i i can't thank him again enough for guys and uh i i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did again if you enjoyed the talk please share it in the social media outlet of your choice and we will be back next week with another awesome guest here on the podcast thank you very much guys we will see you then